everybody. Welcome back to the College Sports Conversations. I am Bonnie Bernstein alongside yet another trailblazer in one Carolyn Peck, the first African-American coach to win a women's basketball championship. Carolyn, thanks so much for joining us in the frenzy that is Final Four week. You are down in Dallas. You've been back with ESPN for several years now as an analyst. As you start thinking big picture about the topics you are going to be covering, the teams you're going to be talking about, how would you describe the current state of women's college basketball? The current state, is, it's fantastic. There are so many great stories on all of these teams, both on and off the court. And Bonnie, we had game days this year, and every one of them was huge. The crowds that I have gone into, the arenas, it's been packed, and it's all built toward the excitement of what this Final Four is going to all be about. I've had so many discussions in the last couple of weeks about the state of women's sports. And I've been asked over and over again about a movement and is it sustainable? And, and I look at several factors. So there are platforms that are investing more in buying the rights to showcase women's sports. There are brands investing more than ever in women's sports. Attendance is up, ticket sales are up, merchandise is up. As somebody who is just completely ingrained in the day-to-day -day of women's sports and specifically basketball, what are the sorts of conversations that you've been having lately? Well, one of the conversations is it's about time. Uh, one, one of the things that I have always seen is, or always thought is that women's basketball was an untapped revenue stream. Like how much more can you get out of football or men's basketball? Women's basketball, if you let people know about it and you let them see it, it is a, it is a commodity. It is something that people can really make money off of. There's great talent on the floor. It's extremely entertaining. Um, and these, these women are so impressive in what they're able to do. And it is, it's not... It, this is a thing that I think people do at times is they want to compare it to men's basketball. It is, it's a sport alone in itself. It has its, it has different intricacies about it that make it attractive for people to want to watch uh, the movement that happens below the rim, though we have women now that are playing up around the rim and women can shoot the basketball, and they also connect with the fans and the community as well. So it's a win-win when you're talking about women's basketball. You bring up a great point, and I want to dive into this a little bit more. So I've, I've read some research lately about men and women on social media. And when NIL first started getting its legs, I think we all made the assumption that it was going to be the football and the basketball players that were inking the big deals. Maybe most prominently in college basketball, we've heard a ton about the Cavender twins in Miami who transferred from Fresno State, but it, they're getting deals with Gatorade and Nike and H&R Block. 
because what we're learning about women on social media is that they engage in a more impactful way with their audience. How important is that when there are brands out there that are considering how they're going to spend their dollars? You know these women, you've coached these women, you've been around these women. If you were going to advocate for female athletes in front of a room full of brands who have money to spend, what would you say to them? I would say that they are the best ambassadors that you could have for your brands. It's not just the Cavender twins. You also look at uh, Angel Reese of LSU and the personality that she brings. You know, Flaje Johnson is a rapper. Uh, one of the most, uh, the highest of character of people that you could have to it, to uh, endorse your product would be an Aaliyah Boston. Uh, with how she has performed both on and off the court. There are so many to choose from. And I'm very encouraged when I have watched the tournament this year on television advertising, the different women that they're using, not just one, because we as women, we come in all shapes, sizes, colors, and it's just um, the variety that you have is extremely marketable. Well. Carolyn, you are heading into the Basketball Hall of Fame in just a few weeks, but I want to go back to you growing up in East Tennessee at a time where the basketball landscape didn't look like what it looks like now. What was your inspiration to first start playing sports? Oh, wow. That goes way back. Um, <laughs> We're going to way back brother. machine. We are getting in yeah. there. <laughs> We're going way back. My oldest brother... Uh, he's about five years older than me, and he was swimming, playing baseball, playing basketball, and he was coming home with all of these trophies. And so when I was five or six years old, I wanted me some trophies. And so my mom took me to the pool and put me in swim lessons, and then I joined the swim team. That was my first sport. And I was a breaststroker and a backstroker. And then basketball, when I got to elementary school, uh, you couldn't try out for the basketball team until you get got into the fifth grade. And so I went to basketball tryouts, but basketball and cheerleading tryouts went on at the same time. And I tried out for both. They posted the finals of who made the basketball team. And at the bottom of the list, they said, if you made the basketball team, you could not go to the finals of the cheerleading. I think it was a conspiracy, but... I thought I'd be great in the middle of a pyramid, uh, you know, of cheerleading formation. But that's how I started playing basketball. And Joyce Williams was the physical education coach or a teacher. And she was she would work with me after PE would be over. We'd have some extra time. And we would just hang around in the lane and shooting basketball. And then uh, Coach Osborne was the coach. And it just went on from there. And you know, just started playing basketball. And I was a big Lady Vol fan. But women's basketball at the time wasn't on television very much. And so we would even listen to it on the radio. I sound antiquated, you know, but we would listen to the games on the radio. And I also remember uh, as I was getting into high school and the NCAA had their first national championship game. And I remember watching Sanja Hogue and those big, those big white glasses that she would wear. 
And then you also had Coach C. Vivian Stringer marching up and down the sidelines with Cheney State. When Cheney State and Louisiana Tech played and watching those women play, you know, I was like, yeah, I want to go to college. I want to try to be part of that. So let's go through the recruiting process. So you would be a big Tennessee fan listening on the radio. What was what were your top schools and what influenced where you finally landed? Well, I'm from Jefferson City, Tennessee, and that's 35 minutes from, well, at the time, Stokely was where the women played. Um, and I uh, was recruited by Pat Summit. I was recruited for, by South Carolina. I was I was Miss Tennessee basketball. I was an All-American. So I was recruited by just about every school across the country. When I got the letter from Stanford, uh, that scared me to death because I couldn't even imagine going that far away from home. Getting on a plane but, and going all the way across the country wasn't appealing to you? <laughs> no, no, not from a small town. When I grew up, we had four stoplights. So no, I wanted that small, intimate feel. Uh, Phil Lee was at... Uh, Vanderbilt University, and he had started uh, recruiting me early on, and that's before re early recruiting was really a thing. Uh, and before my uh, junior year, uh, started getting correspondence from Vanderbilt, and uh, he informed me that there was a pre-engineering program at Vanderbilt, and I could come there in the summer and take some college classes and get some college credit and also uh, shadow with some other engineers. And so I went to Nashville. I did that. I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with Vanderbilt. Uh, I liked the class sizes. It was, it's, your class sizes were small. Uh, and that really was what won me over. But the, the recruiting process was really funny. Because he comes to, he, his wife, and the assistants come to Jefferson City. He invited my whole entire family, from my grandparents to my aunts and uncles, to come to my house. And he gave his recruiting pitch. And I have an aunt, her name is Barbara Dean. And she is she is about 5'3", but she takes over a room. And after the recruiting pitch, she, she said, okay, everybody raise your hand and Tell her, tell us what, where you think Carolyn should go. And so everybody went around and she's, okay, let's just take a vote. Everybody that thinks Carolyn should go to Vanderbilt, raise your hand. And so everybody did. So that was the, that was the spot. It was the academics and also wanted to go to a program where uh, they hadn't really accomplished a lot and wanted to be kind of the, the trailblazer to put Vanderbilt on the map. You also had an opportunity to go to Tennessee. And I'm curious how that conversation went with Pat Summit when you said, hmm, thanks, but no thanks, Coach. Because, you know, like, the, relatively speaking, that was early on in her career. You know, we didn't go on. The, we didn't know at that time what she would go on to be. But Pat Summit was Pat Summit. <laughs> and I'm and not I sure love I would want to have that conversation with her. <laughs> Right. I, I, I love Pat and, uh, you know, talking with her and getting to know her and the recruiting process, but having to call Pat Summit and my mom made me call all the coaches and tell them no myself. And I kept saying, mom, will you do that for me? And she's like, no, uh, but um, calling Pat, that was hard. That was hard, you know, cause you knew, you know, you go to Tennessee, you had a great opportunity to, to compete for a championship or championships 
um, and making the decision to to go to Vanderbilt instead of Tennessee was hard. But she gave me an opportunity later on down the road. I mean, she did give me my fo- my first coaching job. Coaching job. So I guess she wasn't that upset. I want to get to that in a second, but you mentioned engineering. So was there a seed planted in your head that you were going to become an engineer? Because clearly you decided to go in a different direction. Oh, well, my dad was a computer programmer at TVA in Knoxville. And so uh, that always interests me. But after my first semester at Vanderbilt, I realized that engineering was not for me. I mean, I just like to run my mouth too much. And I took a communication class and Dr. Fisher, who was the dean of the communication school of communication, one day he said, what do you, what do you want to do? You know, what are, what are your plans? And I was like, I really don't know. And it was, we had a debate class and he goes, well, you like to argue. And I was like, well, you could ask my brothers, they could tell you that. And so we, he said, why don't you look at going into communication? And it was an interdisciplinary major and it would prepare you to, if you potentially wanted to go to law school. But after four years of college, that was enough for me. See, now law school might have been a good thing since, you know, <laughs> lawyers talk and when they're litigating and you're a trial lawyer. If if it all goes to hell in a handbasket, Carolyn, I think that's the route that you should go. <laughs> <laughs> You've accomplished so much, obviously, as a coach. But when you reflect back on your playing career, if there was just one memory that you were allowed to capture and keep in your heart for the rest of your life, what would that one quintessential playing memory be? Oh, as a player? Yeah. Mm. You know, there were there's so many games and that was so long ago. Yeah, I think that uh, Vanderbilt, we were playing LSU. It was a close game. And um, Phil Lee... Patsy, I think it was either Patsy Smith or Jill Goldberg were shooting the basketball and we could have won and he called timeout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the other the other one is we were in Hawaii. I know we were in Hawaii. We were playing Western Kentucky and um, against Clement Haskins. And uh, I, you know, post players, you're supposed to, when you get the ball at the top of the key, you're supposed to then reverse it and then get down on the block. Well, it came to me. And I shot it and I can hear Coach Lee going, no, no, no. And I made it. And then I look at him and he goes, yes. Yes. <laughs> How many times have he, it, it seems ill-advised before the ball leaves your hand, but then when it goes in, you're like. Right. Um, so I want to hear. How after turning Pat down to go to Tennessee, you landed on her coaching staff. How did that opportunity present itself? Well, after I had gone into the professional world working, I really missed playing basketball. So I was working out again. I had an opportunity then to go overseas and I played a year in Italy and then two years in Japan. Well, then they closed the market to the American players playing in Japan, the female. So I was back and I was at a USA basketball trial at the University of Kentucky and Mickey DeMoss was there, who was Pat's assistant. And Mickey came over to me and she said, Carolyn, you know, now that they've closed the market in Japan, are you going back to Europe or what are you, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I'm not real sure. I'm keeping my options open. 
And she said, had you ever thought about coaching? And I really hadn't, but I thought, and I said, yes. Yes, of course. And she goes, oh yeah. And she goes, oh, great. She said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk to Pat and uh, we'll see, you know, if this can work out. And she said, because they may have an opening. So I was like, okay. So I go back to Nashville. I was living in Nashville at the time. I was working camps. And because of the time change, it was really early in the morning. It was like 6.30 or 7 and my phone rings. And the person on the other line, I'm still asleep. And the person on the other line says, may I speak to Carolyn Peck, please? And so I said, may I tell her who's calling? And the other person on the line said, this is Pat Summit. And I said, can you hold on a minute? And I'm like, <clears throat> trying to clear my throat. And I'm like, hey, Pat, how are you? And so she invited me to come and work there a couple of weeks of camp. And then after camp was over, uh, we all got together with Mickey and Holly. And uh, she decided that it was a fit to offer me the job. And I was the restricted earnings coach. So that meant I was making $16,000 a year. But Fortunately, I'd saved a little money from playing overseas, and Pat would always joke and say, you're the only restricted earnings coach I know that owns their condo and is driving a BMW. <laughs> well, you bring up an interesting point, um, because I find a lot of young people who come out of college today have expectations about salary and are thinking more about the money than they are opportunity. What can you say about the opportunity that offset the money you were getting at the time? Oh my gosh, it was priceless. The experience that if, you know, if I wish everybody could have the opportunity to start their coaching career working for Pat Summit, because I learned so much from her, the standard that she set for everything. Yeah. First and foremost, you know, Pat was family and, and that it really carried over from her family at her house to the family that she created in her women's basketball program that ex that then extended to the family that she really felt at the University of Tennessee. You know, every other sport would bring their recruits to Pat's office so that she, Pat Summit could recruit them and tell them what Tennessee was all about. But the, nobody worked harder. The art of preparation uh, Pat Summit had down, you know, down Pat and her honesty, um, her, her transparency of how she operated um, was just what you could learn from and knew that was something I wanted to take with me as I moved on with, uh, within coaching. And she was all about promoting you to fulfill what it was you were looking for or where you wanted to go. She asked me, because when I was working at Tennessee, she was, Carolyn, what are your goals? And so after working with her and the people that she had introduced me to, I said, I want to be the first female on an NBA staff. And it wasn't necessarily of breaking barriers, but it was more about that would be like getting your PhD in basketball because you turn, over, turn around 80 plus games a season. You got to know basketball like the back of your hand. And so that's really what the direction I thought I wanted to go in, but <laughs> the rest is history.
Well, you you were in the WNBA with Orlando and not just as a head coach, but the GM as well. And in the college ranks, you worked your way up from Tennessee to Kentucky to Purdue, initially as an assistant and then ultimately winning the championship in 1999. And, and I'm sure that winning the title in and of itself was so exhilarating. But I'm wondering if in real time, you understood the impact of you as a woman of color reaching that height that nobody had ever reached before. You know, when I first got hired at Tennessee, Pat afforded me the opportunity to go to the Black Coaches Convention that was down in Florida. Hmm. And I, when I walked in, um, you know, I run into the greats of uh, Vivian Stringer, George Ravlin, uh, John Cheney, uh, Mariana Freeman, Marion Washington are all sitting at one table and coach Stringer calls me over and I had never met her before. And, you know, she introduced herself and she said, you know, congratulated me on being hired at Tennessee. And she said, you know, you're the first black woman that Pat Summit has ever hired. And I hadn't even, I didn't even think about that. You didn't know and that? Then she, I, yeah, I, I didn't know that. I mean, I was just looking to get into coaching. And so uh, she said, you, with that comes great responsibility. And at the time, I really didn't know, you know, what that meant. I thought, well, I have the responsibility of doing a good job or, you know, I, I wasn't really sure, but I, that always stuck with me. And then uh, when we won the national championship and the reporter asked me, how does it feel to be the first black woman to win a national championship? I hadn't thought about that either. I mean, I thought, you know, Vivian Stringer had done it, but she had been to the finals and had been to the final four, but um, she hadn't done it. And, but she had paved the way so that I had that opportunity. She had demonstrated what, the that black women could coach and could win and when i thought about it in retrospect it was because of her success had afforded an athletic director to to have confidence in that if i hire a black woman she can compete she can be successful um and so you know i think that 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 part of that responsibility um did feel i felt like that was on our shoulders that when, when given an opportunity, given a chance, then uh, black women could accomplish things. I mean, you look at what Don Staley is doing and going to the final four and Kenny Brooks now taking Virginia tech there, a black man um, that, you know, that I think is, is important. Well, you, created the perfect transition for me because I, I don't want to make the assumption that you have a very close relationship with Don Staley, who's going for back-to-back -back championships down at South Carolina. But if I were Don, <laughs> you would have probably been one of the first calls I made when I got my first head coaching job. But Don and her team are a reflection of who she was as a player. There's, there's no filter. She's going to do what she does. And she does it with pride and she does it with intention. But sometimes that no filter approach can ruffle some feathers, can rock the boat. 
And Dawn has stayed tried and true to her mindset, her philosophy, how she wants to build that program and how she wants to infiltrate the mindset with her players that she had herself as a player. What example do you think she has set with the approach, the give no fill in the blank attitude that has empowered her to have the success she is now having as a coach? Don Staley knows who she is. She's not trying to be somebody else. She is her true, authentic self. And when you know who you are and you know what you believe, you're not a parrot. You're not repeating something you've heard somebody else say or try to carry out what somebody else believes, but what she truly believes in her heart. She stands behind 100%. So she doesn't have to apologize for that. She is who she is. And I think that she's really, uh, when you talk about rocking the boat, sometimes the boat needed to be rocked. And that, and Dawn was confident in doing that because that is what she truly has in her heart and what in through her experiences and through her growing up uh, as she has matured, the things that she has been through have formed who she is. And Dawn Staley has always stayed true to herself. How important of a message do you think that sends to young black girls? I think it's a message that is sent to young people, regardless of what your color is, regardless of what your sex is. I think that she is a true example of know who you are. You know, we're in a time and a day and age that where a lot of people could jump on bandwagons. It's not a, it's, it's more uh, impactful when the decisions of your actions are based on really knowing who you are and being very educated in what you're about. Um, then you can go and accomplish anything you set your mind to, but just to be, be educated and then be committed, put your feet down and stand in those shoes and be who you are. Yeah. I think 2023 is the year for that. Just be your authentic self and be who you are, you know, being behind a set and talking about the game, you have extraordinary perspective. And I, I know you took a little pause to go coach Florida, but then came back because who wouldn't want to be in our industry? It's such a great time. Um, as we look at this final four coming up, Carolyn, one of the things I'm hearing over and over again is that the Iowa-South Carolina game may be the highest rated game in the history of women's college basketball. So let me get your thoughts on that. And if that indeed is the case, I'm asking you to look into your crystal ball because we're talking before the game has actually taken place. If in fact it does break the ratings record, why do you think that will be the case? Well, I think it's it's everything that has led up to this and the exposure that women's basketball has received. You have South Carolina that is on the pursuit of excellence and undefeated season. You have the reigning national player of the year in Aaliyah Boston. And then you have... Caitlin Clark of Iowa, who fell short last year and is now playing lights out to get her team to the Final Four to possibly compete for a national championship. 
that has been these two players, Aaliyah Boston and Caitlin Clark, have been, I think, two of the most debated players over who should be national player of the year. And I think that's attracted a lot of eyeballs. But that's not, those are not the only two teams there in Dallas. All four teams have great stories. All right. You've got, we talked about the undefeated run for South Carolina. You know, Caitlin Clark and all of her double doubles, even her 40 point double double that she had leading up to the final four. (laughs) Yeah, the 40 point triple double, that was crazy. All right. Then you have Kim Mulkey, who has already won three national championships. She's in her second year at LSU, and now she's at the final four. And Kenny Brooks has brought Virginia Tech to the final four for the first time in their program's history as well. So this is, it's, there are so many great stories that I don't think anybody's going to want to miss any of these three games that are going to happen this weekend. I've I've affectionately referred to the Iowa South Carolina semi as the women's college basketball version of the 2011 women's final cup for soccer when USA faced off against Japan and went into extra time because there's just so much hype even if you're not a, a full-fledged diehard women's basketball fan you want to watch this game just so you can talk around the proverbial water cooler about what happened it's just it's it's can't miss tv as we wrap up our time together carolyn i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you about the impact of title nine on your life because while you are a trailblazer in your own right the reality is that none of us would have had the opportunities that we have been fortunate enough to have in athletics without that legislation so as you sort of fondly think back about what title nine has meant in your life how would you put that into words when i look back at one of the instances where uh there was a extreme inequity in sports for me was when there was a when i was nine years old there were baseball tryouts and i took my glove and i went up to the field to try out and they told me this is only for boys and my mom and a few other moms got involved and it helped to create the softball league so that we could play they found an alternative for us to play but starting there and then looking at as coming through high school and college, and I remember thinking as a young female, well, why don't we get what the guys get? That's just not fair. And now, uh, you know, when I go through college and I look now at the resources that I had when I played to what the women have now evolved to get now, is it 100% perfect? No. But the progress that has been made and all of that has happened because of Title IX. I mean, you even look at the exposure of women's basketball, women's sports in general right now that is broadcast on television. All of that was born from the efforts of Title IX. And like I said, are we, is it perfect? No, but it's come a long, long way incredible perspective from one of the greats in women's college basketball. Carolyn Peck, thank you so much for joining us on the Title IX College Sports Conversations. And thanks to all of you for checking out the podcast. You can find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube as well. (music) 